You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab it. Turn to James chapter 3. Yes, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. We're going to continue in the book of James, which we have titled Our Faith in Action. And if you are a guest today, it's our norm to walk through books of the Bible together because we want to see what God has to say, not what I have to say or Pastor Ryan or anybody else who wants to know what the Lord says to us and how we're called to live uh, out of that. And if you don't have a Bible today, you can grab one right in front of you. There's a, a black hardcover uh, Bible, and you can turn to page 1072. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you uh, so that you could read and follow along uh, with us. And if you are not a believer today, uh, we want you to know that this is a great place for you to, to hear the gospel of Jesus, to see that we give our lives to Him, to hear from God's Word, to see the church sing praises, and it's also a good place to be able to ask questions about who we are, who God is, and what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we gather every week to proclaim the good news that Jesus reigns as King. Although He was crucified and buried, He was raised three days later. And so we come to celebrate that today. So as we start, I think I have a particularly... Uh, difficult question that we all probably identify with. That every person in this room, at some level, at some point in time, has felt this. How many of us today have, were here today, but also have had experiences in the past with the church that were hard, difficult, painful, because of the actions or words of others? Maybe people that we care deeply about Maybe people that we trusted with everything that we have. Maybe we were hurt in some really, really deep ways. I think a lot of us in the room have seen those things play out. We've even been on the end of, of those difficult circumstances. When we come to our text today, James is going to speak directly to this tension that we see in the Christian life. And, and even maybe not just tension, but outright evil, as we just read from James chapter 3. That if we're not careful, even those in the community of God, even those who have placed their faith in Jesus, they can act a way that is totally opposite of what God has called us to. And we, in no way, want to be a people that are marked by the things in the first half of this passage. We want to be marked by the things in the last two verses. And as we think about those difficult circumstances, those difficult conversations, those painful times, what that does is we've all felt that when churches begin to begin to fight inwardly, then we lose our focus that our mission is not to only come and sing kumbaya and leave but yet we're called to grow together as disciples so that we can reach the nations with the truth of the gospel that the mission is to make disciples which we talk about here at cup and hope our mission is to grow mature disciples why because this is what jesus has called us to 
And a lot of times we miss out on that mission because we are defining things how the world defines it. And we act in ways that are contrary to the gospel that we proclaim. And we live in ways that would not demonstrate the gospel of peace. A wise and true life. Division and strife, disunity, desiring power over service, all these things begin to vie for our attention and captivate our hearts and our minds and in our hands. And so no longer are we focused on the mission to help people walk closer with Jesus and to help people who do not know Jesus, we begin to fight with each other. Now, I'm thankful that the Lord has given us a sweet, sweet family as a church. Super thankful for that. But may this passage in James warn us. May we be on guard against these this opposite wisdom as we'll see this morning. And may we look to the gospel, may we look to our Lord and King and say, please give us wisdom to live rightly together so that we grow in godliness and we grow on mission together. So as we look here in our passage, here's a couple things that I want you to know. The truth of the text is this. James calls out false wisdom of his readers by describing both kinds of wisdom and calling for peace. Now, if you're a disciple today, if you've called the name of Jesus, especially if you're a disciple that has covenanted with our church, here's what we want you to know. Faith empowers us with godly wisdom so we cultivate peace and live righteously. We cultivate peace and live righteously. See, the wisdom of God actually empowers us to live the way that God has called us to. That when we live righteously, which in James, remember, he used this word righteousness. He doesn't use it the same way Paul does. This righteousness is to describe how we live, that we actually reflect the people of God. That we actually live like what we talk about. And see, James has already told us in chapter 1, all believers should seek this kind of wisdom that's from above. All of us should go after this wisdom. Why? Because this world is hard and difficult. We may suffer. We need to learn how, what, it, what true and right religion actually is. We need to be able to show mercy. We need to be able to walk in faith. We need to use our words well. We need this wisdom today. We need godly wisdom. I, in and of myself, do not have the answer. But I know that my Lord who stands today and reigns as King, His wisdom will enable me and enable you to live a life that grows others because you are giving yourself away. Because you are serving. Because you are laying your life down for the good of the kingdom and the good of others. Do we know how important our church family is? These words today demonstrate how vastly important this family is. Look at how we must care for one another. Look at how we must speak to one another. Look at how we must connect with one another. Look at how we are supposed to live and how our actions, how they impact each other. And so, as we look here in James, as we think about 
this wisdom that cultivates peace and righteous living, James starts with a question. He basically asks, is there anyone truly wise? Look there at verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Now, in the same way that James started chapter, uh, the half part of chapter 2, he asks a question. Who is wise among you? The question's rhetorical. James wouldn't have been there as the letter was uh, read aloud. But he wants them to consider or examine their own hearts and their own lives to see are they truly wise. He doesn't just want words. He wants to see their wisdom in action. And wisdom, much like in the Old Testament, here James is pulling on those same themes to be understood as theory in practice. As theory in practice. Wisdom is understanding how to live in this world. And combined with understanding, this person would be an expert and is experienced in this life. It's the person that you would go to for advice. So all of us have those people. Who would we go to in times of need, in times of discernment, in times of hardship? Who would we go to to talk to and say, I need you to help me think rightly about this? That's the kind of person that James is talking about. Is this person among you? Do you have that person? And if you are, then you need to examine yourself. Look there. This kind of wisdom produces action so that they could show James that they are pulling from wisdom from Christ. And that wisdom would then produce a good life. Continue there in verse 13. By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in gentleness that comes from wisdom. This good conduct is a life pleasing to God. Doug Moo says, in our, it is our acts of obedience to God performed consistently day after day that make up our good conduct. It's not just saying one thing on one day and saying another. It is actually living consistently from day to day. This good conduct must be shown. I mean, it must be visible. It must be verifiable. We must be able to see each other do this. Much like our faith in chapter 2, that it must be something that others see in us. It's a test for James. It's a test of true, genuine faith. Does the faith that we have produce a wisdom and a righteous living in us, or is it just merely words? But notice how James, he conditions good conduct. Notice the words he uses there. He says it must be shown in gentleness that comes from wisdom. What does he mean by this? Now, gentleness, some of your translations may say humility or may say meekness. We should first understand it by who we are in Christ. But what that means is we understand our humility, our meekness, our gentleness before God means that we understand that we are sinners, not worthy of salvation, but dearly loved. Yet God, He comes to us even in our sin. And so also, think about back in chapter 1 and verse 21, James says, humbly receive the implanted word. Humbly receive this. This is the same kind of gentleness, meekness that James is saying. Now, gentleness, it was a New Testament virtue. It is a New Testament virtue. We see this in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Yet it was not a quality that most Greeks, most people in the first century would have said, this is the kind of quality that I want. It was unworthy of a strong or confident person. I found this quote helpful this week as I was preparing. It says, it recognizes how unable we are in and of ourselves to achieve spiritual fulfillment or chart our own course in the world. And this humility, this gentleness before God should then be translated into how we treat other people. Notice that. That our humility, our gentleness, our understanding of the gospel that we don't deserve to be with God, but yet He came in the form of a man, lived a perfect life, and then gave His life on the cross for us. We don't deserve that, but we understand it. And out of that understanding, it causes us to live a different way. The words of the gospel don't hit us and wash off of us like a windshield. No, we receive it. And we live differently. It means that we show grace and we show mercy. Things that James has already talked about. That this life of wisdom is one that is demonstrated by gentleness. I think in our culture, what it means to be strong and what it means to be a strong person and confident, and maybe what we even talk about as being uh, to be a man, would fit really well with what the Greeks believed in the first century. But it, it doesn't go too well with what we see in the life of Jesus. Gentleness is a lost virtue in our day. And the word doesn't quite get at what James is saying. We need to think about it as gentle, meek, humble. When we consider how to treat others in gentleness, which means in mercy and grace and kindness, in what we say and in what we do, because this is what our Lord has done. I want you to think about how the Lord treated those who were coming to Him with kindness. Those who were caught in sin. Those who were running from their sin. How He would call them to the truth and say, come to Me. My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Jesus never compromised on the truth, yet He was gentle with His words and His actions. This gentleness must be a product of our wisdom, of right wisdom. And again, an understanding of who we are in right relationship to God. We might call this the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. This is how the Proverbs would describe it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's not that we're afraid of God. That's not what it means to be in fear of Him. But it means we rightly understand who we are as creatures and who He is as Creator and who He is as King of the universe. And we understand that we're called to above all things worship Him and nothing else. And we're called to then out of that love to demonstrate that to others. And James, he picks up on this thing that wisdom is knowing who we are in light of who God is. And we have a culture right now that wants to tell you and try to define humanity outside of who God is. And we cannot let that happen. We must let the Bible and God's Word tell us and describe for us what it means to be human, what it means to be a creature, what it means to be a worshiper. We must understand who God is rightly. And so out of this question, who among you is wise? James now is going to provide two different kinds of wisdom. 
two different and opposite wisdom. He's going to show us what fake wisdom is and what godly wisdom is. So look there at verse 14. We're going to see this first wisdom and what disciples should do with it. Disciples denounce earthly wisdom. Disciples denounce earthly wisdom. Verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do, don't boast and deny the truth. Immediately we see a totally different wisdom than what we saw in verse 13. Right, we're hit with a different kind of thought here. The verse is really the opposite of verse 13. And James says, if you are wise, let me see it. But he now confronts the false wisdom. You may say you're wise, but what you're saying is a lie. What you're saying is wrong. And really, this could have been an issue for the churches that were reading this letter. If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition, you are not wise. You're fooling yourself. Now this bitter envy, it could be something like jealousy because of rivalry or strife. There's conflict because someone cannot accept being challenged. Someone cannot be told that they are wrong. Selfish ambition makes it worse though. It means to desire gain, to desire uh, gain over others. It's a personal, selfish gain. It's always self-seeking. Your desires are more important than anybody else for any reason. That's this kind of, this wisdom that is against God. And I read this week that this person who sees himself as jealous for the truth, but God and others see bitterness and, and just personal pride, which are far from the truth. But James says, if this is you, don't boast against the truth. How dare you claim to be wise when you're actually foolish? Don't dare to be wise when you're the opposite. Do not call sin good. Instead of boasting of evil action, just be honest, James says, and stop claiming to be wise. Stop claiming to be inspired by God's wisdom. Don't fool yourself. James provides a clear rebuke of those who will call evil good. May we never find ourselves in a situation where we are calling evil good. And lots of times it's easy to apply that to our world in which we see a lot of things. Now the world describes things as wrong. But James is particularly talking about the church. May we never act in such a way that would be contrary to the gospel and contrary to being a family united in the gospel. This is what James means by don't lie. Don't boast and say, well, I had to be the person that said that. No one else was going to say it. No. May we be people who are considering where this wisdom comes from. And the question is, where does that wisdom come from? Look at verse 15. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James is clear now, if he hasn't been already. This, this wisdom, such wisdom is fake and false. There is no way that this wisdom is from God. And James explains uh, that, that above, that the wisdom from above is from God. That's God's realm. This is where He resides. This is where goodness dwells. The Old Testament is clear that wisdom comes from 
God. And often we see God give wisdom through the anointing of His Holy Spirit, the sending of His Spirit. But don't conflate the two here. James is not saying that if you are wise, you have the Spirit. James is saying he's not uh, equivocating on the words. He's not saying they're the same. What he's saying is that if God, if you have accepted Christ, then you have wisdom because God has sent His Spirit to you and empowers you to live in this wisdom. And although they're similar, they're not the same. God gives wisdom. And James echoes this idea all the way back in chapter 1 when he says that God is the good giver of good gifts. We know if wisdom is a good thing, then it is from God and He gives it to us. And this wisdom is from above, meaning that it is a good gift that we should ask for. But this fake wisdom is not from our good giving God. So where is it from? James tells us it's earthly, meaning it's inferior. It doesn't consider God's perspective or His kingship. Secondly, it's unspiritual. Some of your translations may say natural. Right? This is without a supernatural component to it. It has no connection to God. It would take human reason over God's revelation every day. It would say reason is better than revelation. And we see as our culture continues down its, its path, we see a people who want to think that they are right and have all the knowledge in the world, and yet they are totally devoid of God. And let me just be really clear, we are no different than that. If we do not have the gospel and we do not walk in the gospel daily, we are often confronted to live like this, to say what I think and what I know is better than what God says and what God knows. We must not come to this and say, well, I'm not like those people. We are those people. These, the, J James is writing to the church. This is absolutely possible for us to know Jesus and to live contrary to that if, if we accept the false definition of wisdom. Thirdly, he says it's demonic. He says it's demonic. Literally, what he means is this is from demons or from hell. That the inspiration, the origin of this kind of wisdom comes from demons. It comes from demons. And you may have heard the, these the three characteristics in different ways. You might have heard it, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? And it climaxes to the demonic. And it says, this is not just false. It's not just not from God. It's from His enemy. It's from the devil of lies himself. You claim, James says, to be wise, to have the Holy Spirit. That's impossible. You are inspired, all right. You're inspired by the devil himself. That's what James is saying. Be careful what you call wisdom when, it, when you can actually see the fruit of what it produces. What's the result of this kind of demonic wisdom? Look there at verse 16. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. When we think about how James describes this wisdom, how could it not hurt the community of God? If we just read verse 15, and we said, how can we come away from this and not believe that this will hurt you and it will hurt God's people? 
How could it not divide and hinder God's mission? When this wisdom is present in God's communities, there will be disruption and there will be division. And remember, James is writing to us as a dear pastor. I can imagine him as an older saint pleading with us to consider the danger of this false wisdom. James, above all things, in this section wants us to have peace. He wants us to be unified. I can think about him in the first church council in Acts 15. When they're arguing about Jew and Gentile and what do we have to do to be saved and are the Gentiles a part of God's family and James he stands up after Paul and Barnabas and Peter he stands up and he is the one that cultivates peace he's the one that that speaks truth and then pushes the church to be unified this is what he wants for us to be unified in the gospel he wants us to be unified for the sake of God's kingdom so this wisdom, this false wisdom must not be present among us. And James describes what this, this wisdom brings. Disorder and every evil practice. Disorder plays back on the word demonic, right? but it also plays back on this idea of double-mindedness that we see in chapter 1. Right? So it has this idea of going back and forth, wavering, but this idea of it causing division. Even division to a point of warfare. That the word is used when, we're when the Bible talks about war. It causes division through lies and fear. And this turns into every evil practice, right? When there's fear and lies. And there's double-mindedness, division. Literally anything you can think of will happen in a church that has this kind of wisdom. This evil will happen. The actions are devoid of God. His presence and most certainly His wisdom. But think about this. This kind of wisdom, this kind of chaos, both uh, ruins the credibility of the church in the eyes of the world and the ability of our own church family to actually care and minister to one another. And when we fight for power in our Christian circles, evil establishes a foothold where it does not belong. When we operate with worldly values, seeking our own honor and status, we even offer Satan an entrance into our body, into the house of God. And may that never be us. So what does this look like in the church? What is this kind of wisdom? How does it play itself out? First of all, it it, it comes to a place where we begin to call sin okay. That we begin to say, this is okay. Ah, well, God's word doesn't really mean that. That's where it starts. I'm not even talking about the big issues. I'm talking about the, the way we act, the way we treat one another, the way we talk to one another. Or then it becomes this idea of grabbing for control. Wanting things my way. Instead of submitting ourselves to the good of each other, like Paul says in Philippians 2 and Ephesians 5.21, that we're called to, in love, submit to one another. It can play itself out in gossip. But it also can play itself out in this idea of perfectionism, that when we walk through that door, we have everything together. That none of us today are struggling with sin in any way. And let, if you're a guest of that, let me be really honest, I struggled with sin last night. 
and the day before and the day before. And I know most of us in the room would say, yeah, I struggle with that. And so may we never walk through that door and, have, and put on a persona of like, yeah, we have it all together. May we never be superficial. But that's what this wisdom does. Because if we want to have power, we want to have status and fame, then everybody in the room must think that I have everything together. And I assure you, I do not. And you don't. You may think you do today. But you don't. But there is a God who does and who invites you into knowing what it means to be righteous and holy and loved. May we never welcome sin. May we call it out. May we struggle, though, together, pursue unity and righteousness together. We see where this false wisdom leads to. So where does, where does the good wisdom, where does it go to? How does it help us? What is true wisdom? Look there, verse 17, and we get this second wisdom and what we're to do about it. Disciples desire godly wisdom. Disciples desire godly wisdom. Look there, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. In contrast to this fake wisdom, James now calls our attention to what true wisdom actually is. Look at there at that list in verse 17. James uses multiple qualities to describe what this wisdom actually is, what it does, and how we see it. First, James says that its wisdom from above is first pure. This is the chief quality, the chief characteristic, and in many ways it oversees the ones that follow. If wisdom is not first pure, meaning it's coming from God, then it doesn't matter if it has these other qualities or not. It has to come from God. Wisdom that is pure is first and foremost of God. It comes from Him. It is morally blameless. It does right things. It behaves morally right. It is morally upright because this wisdom reflects God's character and reflects His character and desires His character more than any other source in the world, more than any other knowledge. But it also has this idea of unmixed motives, right? It loves God more than anything else, and it seeks Him, and it seeks to please Him. That's what this true wisdom, this pure wisdom is. Now, under this, this chief virtue of purity sit seven other qualities that help us and help the church understand what this wisdom and how it plays itself out. How, what we should look for, what we should cultivate, what we should, we should call for. Really, what the characteristic of the church should actually be. In a lot of ways, this comes, uh, it's similar to the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5. If we want to look to how our church should be and live and do, we should come to James chapter 3. And this is what he says. He says it's first peace-loving after purity. Meaning that wisdom from God desires peace and is therefore willing to submit to others. They want to make peace above all other things. Secondly, it's gentle. As I've told you before. Meaning it's not physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually out of control. It is not combative with other people. The wise person does not get angry when 
they are under pressure. They don't get defensive when their views are, are uh, being challenged. Right? They don't get intense because the conversation's difficult. They're under control. They're gentle. And as I said, this quality is overlooked in our culture. And, and as I said, if we see this in America, as you absolutely saw it in the first century, I think we need to recover what it means to be gentle, to be strong yet kind, and especially how we treat others and the way we talk to each other and the way we talk about other people. And then he says, thirdly, it's compliant. Real wisdom is also compliant, meaning it submits to true teaching. It's not compliant to, to false wisdom. It's not compliant to lies. No, it's compliant to truth. Meaning that the person who is peace-loving and gentle seeks the truth. And then they are changed by it. They listen to others carefully. They want to listen instead of attack. And once a decision is made, they move on. And they move at full speed for the sake of the kingdom of God. I think as we grow in maturity together, one of the qualities that we need to grow in, just in general is listening. Let me sit down and just listen to another person. Because if I'm really honest with you, I like to sit down and maybe listen for a few moments, and then I like to really start talking about myself. And I think most of us, there's a few of you in the room that, that would just sit and listen and are happy to do so. I am not that person. My teachers in school, they hated that because I would talk nonstop, okay? We need to learn to listen to other people, to care for them, to actually bear each other's burdens. Right, and this idea of being compliant, this, this statement struck me again this week. I've shared it with you before. A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. Then you see who the real person is. A person's spiritual maturity is not seen until they don't get what they want. May we be able to say, it's okay. I can, I can live with that the good of my brother or sister in Christ. These three qualities and this, these, uh, these ideas, it, it gets to a question that I heard uh, just a few weeks ago. Especially in our culture, in our day and time. Are you a delight to disagree with? Are you a delight to disagree with? Not saying you change your, your views, not saying you change your opinions. But are you a delight to disagree with? That's the question that should probably govern how we speak and talk to each other. Are we a delight to disagree with? Continue there. James said this wisdom is full of mercy. Wisdom from above is full of mercy, meaning mercy in how we treat others and by our actions. James may be echoing chapter 2, verse 13, and talking about how we show mercy to others. Do we show mercy knowing that we have received much mercy from God. This is the true test of wisdom. That we understand that we have been shown mercy, that we have not been dealt with the way that we deserve to be dealt with. Instead, it was placed on Jesus and He bore the wrath of God. Jesus says the same thing. Those who have been shown mercy should show mercy. In, in the, the parable of the wicked servant, we see a servant who is shown mercy and, his, and grace when his debt is erased, yet he goes after the debt that he was owed. 
May we be a people who are full of mercy and extend mercy to others. It's also has it has good fruits. Good fruit is a product of God's wisdom. Right? It's living and active and it comes out of our mouths and it happens with our hands and our hearts. It produces righteousness in us. It's also unwavering though. Wisdom that is unwavering does not doubt the church. It does not doubt their brothers and sisters. They are stable. They're not hypocrites. Right? They, they trust who God is and they trust God's people. They're also not double-minded. They don't trust one day and condemn the next. To be unwavering means that we move forward together. No matter the decision, no matter the cost, we go forward to make disciples because this is what King Jesus has asked us to do. And finally, James says that this wisdom is without pretense. Finally, true wisdom is genuine and sincere. Right? It's authentic. It's not fake. You can see it. You can feel it. You can even smell it. That this person genuinely loves Jesus. You've been around those people, right? That when you're with them, you're like, my gracious, I, I know that that person's been walking with Jesus. And I, I feel like I, I feel more invigorated and I feel uh, more empowered to walk with Jesus because I just spent time with them. If we could become that kind of people all together, what could we do for the kingdom of God through the power of the Holy Spirit? If we spend time with Jesus and spend time with each other and we're like encouraged, just like we said last week, be encouraged to walk in faith. If these qualities are a product of God's wisdom, then we need to look for them. Right? You need to look for them. I, I would encourage you, if you don't, maybe you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, take this list and put it on your mirror and ask the Lord to make you this way. Lord, please make me gentle and compliant and peace-loving. Please do that. But also as a church, this is why we have a membership process. That we look and watch your life. And we look how you treat others and speak to your spouse and speak to your kids and speak to, your, to each other. Because we want to see who you say you are and does that line up with who you actually are. It's also a way for us in our missional communities throughout the week and in, and in discipleship groups that we actually, we actually say, are we living up to the standard that we proclaim? That's why we do this. It's also seen in how we serve each other. The person who exhibits these qualities is a person that's going to give their life away for the sake of the kingdom and the sake of you looking more like Jesus. I've asked the Lord this week to make me into this kind of person. And I've prayed all week that, that God would make our church into this kind of church. But look at verse 18 and how he ends. Look at, well, look at what he says as a result. And the fruit of righteousness is sown, by, sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Some of our translations may be a little different. This is a, a fairly odd phrase for James to use. Basically what he's saying is, what is the result of wisdom? Wisdom brings a harvest of righteousness that's produced by peace. If we have wisdom, we cultivate peace and we live righteously. Faith produces wisdom which produces peace, which produces righteous living. 
That's what James is saying. Wisdom is known to make peace. But this fruit or this harvest must be the product of true and godly wisdom. That is, it must be sown. We must actually, you've heard the idea of what, you, what you're going to reap, what you sow. So how we live, how we respond, how we obey, all those things, how that is sown into the fabric of our family. We're going to reap that. Right actions must be taken. Peace is something that we all desire, right? I don't think anybody in the room that I know of is like, yep, give me conflict. I eat conflict for breakfast. I love it, right? No one in the room, maybe one. Maybe one person in the room is like, yeah, give it to me. But most of us are like, no, I don't want conflict at all. But how do we normally go about having that peace? How do we normally go about keeping the peace? Or do we actually have these virtues? Does it actually play itself out this way? Right? We don't normally make peace. We normally keep peace. Let me show you the difference. Consider what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be the sons of God. It's the only action listed in the Beatitudes. The only action. And it's the, it's the only promise that connects us with who God is. Right? It's the result if you are peacemakers, you are children of God. Why? Because our God is a reconciling God. He was the one sinned against by many people, not just one, by billions and trillions of people at this point. And He said, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to reconcile and I'm going to make peace. I'm not just going to keep the peace. Right, in Christ, I sent my own Son to live a perfect life who then will have a bridge for those who want peace with me. God made peace through the blood of Christ's cross. We are not peacekeepers. We are peacemakers. But what does keeping the peace look like? What does keeping the peace actually look like? Well, keeping the peace is covering up circumstances that are hard. Right, you know, there's an instance we've seen this issue. Churches go through hard times and they try to sweep it under the rug. And look, you know, we hear we got to protect the church, protect the gospel. You know what? No. Let's speak the truth, act righteously, and let the chips fall where they fall. That's what, but that's what keeping the peace looks like. Maybe it's superficial relationships. Maybe it's like, hey, how are you doing? And then never actually really getting to know anybody in the room. So that you're never at conflict with anybody. Maybe it's you hold back the truth in that conversation because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. Maybe you're afraid of how they're going to view you. Maybe we avoid conflict when we actually need to actually just say something. That's what keeping the peace is. We must not be people who avoid problems, difficult circumstances. We must not be people who are unable to have uncomfortable conversations. Right? Just to keep the peace. We must be people who make peace by speaking the truth in love, being gentle and kind, but also being unified around the gospel. We must be peacemakers. How do we build a, a momentum towards reaching our community, reaching the world with the gospel? How do we start a disciple-making movement here from this place all around the world? First, we protect the unity of the gospel. We protect the unity of our church. 
We call out sin when it needs to be called out. We speak the truth and we speak it in love and kindness and gentleness. We show mercy to others when someone sins against us. We show them mercy and grace. Not that we don't talk about it. That maybe we mention it and say, hey, I was hurt by this. Did you mean that? And if so, hey, I forgive you for that. That's what making peace is. We show mercy when we have been wronged. Not that we eat it and not that we're a doormat, but no, we actually, we actually have conversation about it. We say, hey, I was hurt by this, but I want to forgive you anyways. And we show mercy the same way God has shown mercy. May we seek the good of, of each other over our own selves. In every decision that our church makes, in everything that we do, may we be a people who say, You're, you are more important than me. You are more important than what I think is right. You are more important than what I think. And let me just be really honest. If we have a group of people to do that for a long period of time, we're going to make a dent in the lostness in our community. Because our world is searching right now for the truth, and it's searching for people who, who will speak the truth to them, but will also embrace them in love. Hold out the truth, and hold out our arms and say, come and hear what the gospel is. Let me tell you what the gospel is. Let me tell you how much God loves you. Let me tell you why your life is, is, is in shambles, because you're trying to live it apart from who He is. May we be people who make peace through the gospel. My prayer this week, and, and probably moving forward for a period of time for us, is that we see and have what true wisdom is. But we've got to ask for it. We've got to pray for it. We've got to ask the Lord to do this in us. We've got to ask for it individually. We've got to ask for it in small groups or missional communities. We've got to ask for it corporately. This is a good gift that we can receive. And I pray that our church is marked by true wisdom. I pray that we desire it. My, my prayer again, too, is that you've seen the danger of false wisdom. And that you see that and you say, let me desire true and godly wisdom today. I pray that this wisdom of God will be put in our hearts and calls us to be peacemakers and that we will see a harvest of fruit from righteous living to people who come to faith in Christ, from people turning away from addiction, from people freed from bondage, so that we are a people who say, Jesus is King, and we see the fruit of that. Will you pray with me? God, I ask you today to make us into this kind of people. I, I feel like I come to your word a lot and I just ask you to make us make me make us into this kind of people we need you to do this if we want to see people come to faith if we want to see people place their faith in you if we want to see people confess their sin Lord we need to be peacemakers but to do that we got to have true wisdom we got to have your wisdom so God would you please please make us into these kinds of people we ask this in Jesus' name.